Well, this time we'll dismiss the children up through fifth grade for junior church. And while they're making their way to the back, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John and chapter 19. John and chapter 19. I'll start out with a question. I'll start out with a question. Who is the king? Who is the king? Uh, Many of our neighbors would say, we don't have a king. And in one sense, they are right. We'll be voting this Tuesday, if you're of voting age and uh, able to vote, for governor, senator, and other roles. In my district, I'm able to vote on six items, uh, senator, governor, lieutenant governor, district representative, state senator, and state representative, but I won't be voting for king. And that's for two reasons. First, we don't elect a king in the United States. But the second reason we don't vote for king is that Jesus is king. Jesus is already the king. In the Bible, Jesus is presented over and over as king. In the Old Testament, Jesus is presented as the coming king. In the New Testament, he is presented as the arriving king. And at the end of the book, he is presented as the returning king. There is simply no way around it. Jesus is king. And on a week like this, our hearts will either worship the king, which leads to peace and hope and righteousness in our lives, Or we will worship something else, something smaller, something lesser as king, and that leads to suffering. So as we focus this week on Jesus, we won't set ourselves up for despair. Well, in John 19, we'll see this, and today we'll be in verses 8 through 16. It's also on the back of your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Let me pray first, and then I will read our text. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us without a good king. Thank you that Jesus rules and reigns from his throne, seated at your right hand. Thank you that he has defeated sin and Satan and death, and that nothing can stop his kingdom from coming here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you that as we trust in Jesus as king, we find that our own crown falls off and we are set free from ourselves and given new life and purpose and joy and hope. So now as we hear from your word this morning, help us behold our King, Jesus. Thank you for this time in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John and chapter 19, I'm going to begin by reading verses 8 only through 11 to get us started. John 19, 8 through 11. This is the word of our king. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, 
you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. All right, let's stop there. In verse 8, it says that Pilate is more afraid. He either, depending on how the Greek word is translated, gets more afraid of the situation or he sort of turns into fear from his other posture of just being in opposition to the Jewish leaders. But why is he more afraid? Well, if you look back at verse 7, here's what we saw at the end of our message last week. Pilate comes out to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, and, and says to them, uh, you know, you're king, you're king. I find him innocent. He's, he's not guilty. We can't really crucify a guy like this. And they say in verse 7, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. So to the Jewish leaders, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, of mocking God, of claiming the authority and power of God. But to a Roman governor like Pilate, I mean, he didn't care about Jewish blasphemy laws. But Pilate probably wondered, who in the world is this guy? This guy, Jesus, is here, and he's not interacting like anybody else I've ever interacted with. His people claim that he's a false king. Jesus sort of denies it, but then he sort of welcomes it because he says, you know, I have a kingdom. My kingdom is not from this world. Pilate's thinking, well, this guy's either crazy, he thinks he's a king, or maybe, maybe there's something more about this guy. He's not responding like other criminals who were about to be crucified and killed. His people want him dead, but he's not worried So Pilate here was probably superstitious, like a lot of Romans were at the time. Maybe he thought, well, Jesus, maybe he's sort of divine. Maybe he has some godlike powers or authority. Those were not rare superstitions in that day and age. And that explains the question Pilate asks in verse 9. All this back and forth. Who are you? Where's your kingdom? Are you a king? Where? Okay, now look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. All right. If someone says they're a king or his people say they're a king and he's claiming to be the son of God and Pilate the governor says, all right, where are you from? And Jesus gives no answer. I want you to picture that. Okay? Pilate asks Jesus, really confused about who he is, where are you from? And Jesus No answer. I'm not even going to tell you where I'm from. Pilate, you couldn't even understand where I'm from if I wanted to tell you. If Pilate was having superstitious thoughts about Jesus and Jesus keeps his mouth shut about where he's actually from, Pilate has reason to be worried. So Pilate decides in the trial of Jesus to play his final card. What is the last card Pilate has to play? He's been trying to get Jesus off the hook, trying to get the people to agree. Okay, we whipped him. We dressed him up. Isn't that enough? All right, Pilate has one card left, and that's in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? There's the carrot. And authority to crucify you. There's the stick. In other words, I can let you go. I've got that power. I, the governor, have power over your life. I can let you go. And it sure seems like he's trying to let Jesus go. Or he says, I can kill you. 
I have the power over your life. To put it another way, maybe he's saying, uh, Mr. Jesus, don't you understand how government power works? Don't you realize where the power is? And here's the biggest clue about the kingdom of Jesus. The Roman Empire, the biggest empire in the world at the time, and the Caesar, Tiberius at the time, and Pilate, the governor of Judea, all thought they had all the power. They had all the control. They decided who lives and who dies. They thought government power was the biggest power, and they thought Jesus had no power at all. And so here is the main point of what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of Jesus is not from this world. It's bigger. The kingdom of Jesus is better. The kingdom of Jesus is more powerful than the Roman Empire because the kingdom of Jesus is still here and the Roman Empire is gone. The kingdom of Jesus has more resources to get things done. The kingdom of Jesus is the only sure thing. And God's judgment overrules all earthly judges. Pilate thinks that his government has all the power. And Jesus says that all human government power comes from God. Did you know that, Mr. Pilate? All human authority comes from God. And therefore, it's temporary and subordinate. Jesus is saying that all human authority, including Governor Pilate, comes from God and is therefore temporary and subordinate, which is verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, who is that? Who delivered Jesus over? over to Pilate. Uh, That's certainly talking about Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest at the time. He had overseen the overnight trial of Jesus. He had power and authority in the Jewish system to decide who had broken Jewish law and to decide who should be sent to the Romans for execution. So here we have the high priest of Israel handing the true high priest of heaven, Jesus, over to the Romans to be executed. And Jesus says, so Caiaphas is more sinful than Pilate. Uh, Well, why? Aren't all sins sins? Well, yeah, they are. But Pilate was the Roman governor. He was given the charge by God to be the governor. And when someone brings charges of sedition into his courtroom, he has to take those charges and consider them and have a fair trial about them, right? Roman governors were supposed to do that. So Pilate's God-given role was to evaluate those claims. And he even comes to the right conclusion. Jesus, you're innocent. I find you, you didn't do anything wrong. People, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. But Pilate ends up sending him off to die anyways. But the high priest, Caiaphas, however, he was supposed to be leading the people of God. He was supposed to be knowing and studying the scriptures. He was supposed to be telling the people what God cares about and what God doesn't care about. And he wasn't supposed to be holding overnight trials just to get rid of Jesus. And so while Caiaphas and Pilate are both sinners and are both sinning here in the execution of Jesus... Caiaphas's sin is greater because he abused his power as a high priest. So here we see again and again in Scripture that we need a better government than what the world can offer. The high priests 
were still sinners. We needed a better high priest. The Roman Empire and its governor were compromised. We needed a better empire to be a part of. Caesar was being treated like the king, but we needed a better king. So what Jesus is teaching Pilate here in his civics lesson for the Roman governor, who's trying to give Jesus a civics lesson, is that all human government power comes from God. He says from above, and that means from heaven or from God. And therefore, it's temporary and it's subordinate. So Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know who's in charge here? And Jesus says, don't you know where your power and authority come from? So it's a great week to think about this because Tuesday is election day. And everyone who is elected this Tuesday will gain a temporary and subordinate position of government authority. A temporary and subordinate position of government authority. Caiaphas had a position of authority. It was temporary. It was subordinate. And he was only permitted to perform his duties in line with God's law. Well, Pilate had a position of authority. It was temporary, subordinate, and he was only permitted to perform his duties in line with God's law. So even though the Roman government allowed crucifixion, Pilate did not have permission to crucify innocent people like Jesus because that broke God's law. Not Roman law, but Jesus is saying, even though you have a position of authority, you still cannot kill an innocent person because that's forbidden by God's law. Notice what Jesus isn't saying. He isn't saying uh, God gave you the authority and you can do whatever you want, right? Jesus isn't affirming Pilate's power to do whatever Pilate thinks just because God had assigned him that role. He's saying just the opposite. It's not okay to kill innocent people because God gave you that position of authority And God says murder is wrong, and so you can't murder people. We know this from other areas of authority. A parent has God-assigned authority over children. Children must obey their parents unless a parent forbids what God commands or a parent commands what God forbids. So children, teenagers, you must obey your mother and father unless they command you to do what God forbids or forbid you to do what God commands. So Jesus gives Pilate a small civics lesson. He's really saying, you know, King Caesar, he isn't even in charge around here. You wouldn't have your power unless it was given to you from above. And what he's really saying to us as we read it in John is that the one who is in complete control of this situation is not Pilate or Caesar, but Jesus himself. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. On trial, about to be executed, Jesus willingly goes through it to prove what kind of a king he was going to be. And this trauma, this dilemma, this tension explains the end of the trial of Jesus. Pilate is either going to worship King Jesus or worship King Caesar, which brings us to Pilate's dilemma in verses 12 through 16. Now let's look at verse 12. Pilate is worried. He's conflicted. He's stressed out. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release 
him. All right, stop there. Remember, Pilate was convinced Jesus didn't deserve crucifixion. He has Jesus whipped and he's, he's dressed up by his soldiers. He brings him out again and he's trying to get this trial over with. He kept giving the crowds and Jewish leaders options to spare Jesus and to not have the blood of Jesus on his hands. All right, back to verse 12. Pilate wanted to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are Caesar's friend. You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Let's stop there. There it is. The Jews gave Pilate a choice. You can support the Roman government and the king Caesar, or you can support Jesus and his kingdom. The people are saying, if you let Jesus go, then you, Pilate, have chosen Jesus instead of Caesar. It's Jesus or the Roman government. It's King Jesus or King Caesar. It's the power of Jesus or the power of this world. It's the government of Jesus or the government of this world. It's the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of this world. And this is true at all times. We see this in every culture. Either the kingdom of man and human governments will influence God's people for the worse, which it did in this moment. God's people, the Jewish people, were so blind to what Jesus was doing that they favored the Roman government over the true Messiah who came. Either the kingdom of man around God's people will influence us for the worst, or the kingdom of heaven will influence our neighbors for the better. And this is how the kingdom of Jesus comes. Jesus builds his kingdom not through primarily governments, but through primarily his body, the church. And so as healthy churches worship, and as healthy churches evangelize, and as healthy churches raise families and make disciples of the next generation, that is the primary way the kingdom of Jesus spreads, through the body of Jesus Christ, his church. And so right now, there's a huge way that you can help out seeing the kingdom of God come in our region as it is in heaven. We make disciples of children here in the children's ministry. Right now, people are serving as teachers and helpers to make disciples of those children so that the next generation will grow in their love and fear of the Lord. The primary way the kingdom of Jesus spreads is through healthy churches making disciples. So will you consider teaching or helping in our children's ministry, making disciples of the next generation? We're praying that God will fulfill some of those open spots. Maybe the Lord will open up your schedule to free you up to help us make disciples. If that interests you, if God puts that on your heart, reach out to me or Crystal Moyer, our children's ministry director. Jesus builds his kingdom, not through governments, but through his body, the church. And after the resurrection, the people of Jesus gathered just like this, not in a room this big, but just like this in churches. And they lived as entirely different communities than the world around them. And their influence on the Roman Empire and on all empires since then leads to massive structural changes for the good of the world. May history be able to be the say, able to say the same of us, that we as God's people in this region for such a time of this would have such an influence on the kingdoms of this world so that the kingdoms around us would line up more and more with God's revealed will for the flourishing of people.
In order for that to happen, you and I need to love Jesus more than smaller kings, more than lesser routes of power. And that was Pilate's problem. Poor Pilate, right? Look at verse 12 one more time. Pilate, who are you going to choose? Where is the power from? What are you going to pick? Verse 12, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So you can support King Caesar or you can support King Jesus. That's the dilemma. Now watch what happens. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. You'll remember from last week, they dressed him up with a purple robe. They pushed a crown of thorns into his head. They dressed him up as a mockery king. All right, now verse 15, the end of the trial of Jesus. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Well, there's the end of the trial. We'll pick up in verse 17 next week as Jesus goes towards his crucifixion. Well, the true king was there. Pilate wouldn't worship him. The Jewish leaders wouldn't worship him. They all picked Caesar or power or influence or King Caesar over Jesus. And this is simply the most embarrassing claim that the Jewish leaders had to make. In the middle of verse 15, Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That's the choice, Jesus or lesser kings. And that's your choice too. That's your choice today. That's your choice this week. Jesus, who builds his kingdom by making us into new people who live entirely different than the world around us, sacrificially loving God and loving neighbor, or we are tempted to put our trust in lesser things and smaller kings. Or lesser things and lesser kings, because it rhymes. Some people claim to worship Jesus, but all of their hopes are in an election this Tuesday. All of their hopes are not in King Jesus. Some people claim to worship Jesus, but all of their hopes are in their retirement fund. All of their hopes. Some people claim to worship Jesus, and all of their hopes are in their career. Some people claim to worship Jesus, but all of their hopes are in their relationship or their future relationship. Some people claim to worship Jesus, but all their hopes were in a baseball game last night. If you want to know whether that statement is true, whether all of some people's hopes were in a baseball game last night, listen to Sports Talk Radio. It's not worth your time. Think about that line again. The chief priests answered out loud to be recorded in history. We have no king but Caesar. 
You know, for a couple of thousand years, the people of God were waiting for their true king. God was always referred to by his people often as their true king. Exodus 19, they're going to go into the promised land. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's people, you're a new kingdom. I will be your king. In the Psalms, they worshiped God as their king. We said one earlier, Psalm 5, verse 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. The Jewish people had no king but God, actually. And there they are saying, we have no king but the person who's in charge right now in our government. And the prophets were waiting for the Messiah to be their true king. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And he's there on the pages of John 19 in Israel. The king was there. Pilate had him dressed up like a king. He puts him out on the stage and says, behold your king. The king was there and the people say, he's not our king. Our king is Caesar. They just couldn't see it. And that's the choice. Jesus or lesser king. So friends, who is your king? Sometimes it's hard to know. Think for a moment right now about your biggest fear, your biggest anxiety, or your hardest trial. Think about that for a couple seconds. Your biggest fear, your biggest anxiety, or your hardest trial. Okay, as you thought about that, where was your heart going for deliverance in that? Was it going right to the Lord Jesus Christ who will walk with you through that? Or was it going somewhere else? Here's another question. This Tuesday's election day. How worried are you? How hopeful are you? Let me ask it this way. Have you spent more time this month worrying about this election or praying about this election? It's an important question. More time worrying or more time praying? More time praying would reveal that Jesus really is the king in whom your hope is in. My advice this Tuesday night would be to keep the TV off until you've spent some serious time in prayer to King Jesus. All right. Tuesday's election day. What is true about Tuesday? I didn't pick this text. It just so happened that God ordained that this would be the place we were at in John, where Jesus is giving Pilate a civics lesson on government power. It happened to line up that way. Obviously, God had some things he wanted us to think about. So Tuesday, those who are able to vote, uh, we're going to be voting on Tuesday. Four things to keep in mind. First, God is in control. God is in control. Pilate thought that he was in control and Jesus corrected him. So remember this week that God assigns power. There will not be an accidental miscount this week that thwarts God's will for our land. God is in complete control of the outcome of the election and he was in complete control of the trial of Pilate over Jesus. So in light of that, Christians should be very hopeful this week because God is in control. Second, 
God's assignments are not affirmations. God's assignments are not affirmations. Pilate was assigned his role as Roman governor over Judea by God, even though Pilate didn't believe in God. Pilate didn't care about God. Pilate was wicked in many ways. So God's assignments on Tuesday are not necessarily affirmations of those candidates. In fact, sometimes God puts people in power to judge a nation or a region. He certainly did that with Israel's first king, King Saul, an intentional assignment by God to judge the nation of Israel. So God is in control, but second, assignment is not affirmation. All right, third, political power is subordinate. Political power is subordinate. So whoever becomes our next governor and senator and representatives and all those things only has that power because of God. And they are called to only use that power in line with God's revealed law. Or else they are abusing their assignment and power that God gave them. And it's not just the people we're voting for. You have a vote if you're of age and you're able to vote as a legal voter. You have been given very incredible political power that most of the world through history has not had the ability to vote in a representative democracy. So God has given you that vote as a gift to use for his glory, not just for your personal or private benefit. To use that for the common good, not your particular, say, financial interest. So what are we voting for? People to assume roles of public authority. And God give clear instructions on this. So when we vote Tuesday, what are the job descriptions of all of the people we're voting for? Well, Christians have debated this over the centuries. What is the role of public servants? And in Scripture, there are two absolutely clear things that government officials are supposed to do. In Romans 13, 3 and 4, we find out that everyone who wins a vote is to approve good and punish evil. Romans 3, 13, 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Point one, we're voting for people to approve good in their role. Verse four, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So all government power has, at least from Scripture, one clear job description, no matter what their official job description says. They are put there by God to approve good and to punish evil. That's what we're voting for. That's what we're voting for. God gave Pilate power to punish evil and reward good. He didn't. He abused his power and executed an innocent man. And yet Jesus willingly went through it to deliver us from our sins and from our despair and from our hopelessness. But still, Pilate was abusing his God-given power. And God gave you a vote to vote for people who will punish evil and reward good in the jurisdictions that they've been placed in. So I thought a lot about this week of some issues that, that are either evil or good, obvious issues of evil that God will bring serious judgment on in Scripture. What are those issues that need to be affirmed as good or punished as evil? Well, here are some issues of evil. 
And if uh, you are thinking of a particular candidate, I'm not. If you're thinking of a particular party, I'm not. As I look at Scripture and think about Scripture, what does God bring swift judgment on? Number one, the abuse of power, especially for personal gain. The abuse of power, especially for personal gain. So government people who are in it for themselves is a huge problem. I have serious concerns about candidates who are clearly ethically compromised and clearly in that for their own personal gain. If I can discern that about a candidate, oh, I can tell they're just in it for personal gain, then I have serious concerns about those candidates. Number two, lying and deception. Lying and deception is a huge problem God addresses over and over in the Bible, particularly among leaders. One of the Ten Commandments is do not bear false witnesses. Do not bear false witness. So candidates who lie or who spread rumors that aren't true or that don't have evidence to go along with it or who label people with false labels, and I know that's not really what that person said. God hates lying and deception, and I have serious concerns about candidates who lie or misrepresent others, because if they'll stand in a political ad and lie, 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 and I know they're lying, and they'll say, I approve this message, then I know that they're lying to me about everything else they're going to do, or they're willing to. So when someone is clearly lying or deceiving, I have serious concerns about those candidates. Here's another one. Corruption in business. Corruption in business. God often has harsh words, particularly in the minor prophets, for those who profit off of the loss of others, who tip the scales of justice or tip the scales of business in their own favor instead of having honest business practices. Watch in the minor prophets how often you use faulty weights and scales and God is just judging the people for doing that. So for using government power to tip the scales of justice or the economy instead of having honest business practices. I have serious concerns when people are willing to tip the scales of industry for personal gain. Judges who rule with bias. Instead of upholding the laws, when judges call the innocent guilty or vice versa, when judges decide that the facts don't matter, but their particular bias matters in a situation that corrupts justice, and God has no patience for that. So I have serious concerns about candidates who rule with bias instead of integrity. And, of course, the issue everyone is talking about, all the signs and many of the political ads. If you watch any of them, you will know that abortion comes up all the time. I wish it wasn't even an issue in Pennsylvania, but here we are at this time in history. Abortion takes the life of a child, full stop. Right? A human boy or a girl is alive, and then abortion takes their life. Every candidate wants us to be thinking about it and talking about it, And God certainly has something strong to say about it. In Israel's history, there were two kingdoms, the north and the south. And the northern kingdom went bad first. And what did they do? They set up false gods and they set up false places of worship. And over and over they chose other gods other than God. But what was the issue that God says tipped the scale for God to no longer be patient and to say, I am now going to bring the Assyrian army into the north and exile you? It was how they treated children. 
In 2 Kings 17, God says, you despised my laws, went after other gods, although they had been doing that. What tipped the scales? 2 Kings 17, 17, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. They killed their children to have a better life. And that is what pushed God's patience to the limit, and he brought judgment. And of course, that makes us think about abortion because it ends an innocent child's life. If you've been here for any amount of time, you know we're a pro-life church. We support local pregnancy centers. We've partnered with Amnion Pregnancy Center. We're doing a diaper drive to make sure that mothers who have their children have diapers to put on them. We love mothers. We love babies. We support women and we support children. But one way we can support children in the pro-life cause is heavily thinking about that issue as we consider our votes. Heavily considering about that. In 2020, death was all over the news because of COVID, the pandemic, the death totals were in the news. In 2020 in America, COVID took 350,000 lives. Cancer took 600,000 lives. Heart disease took 700,000 lives. And abortion took 930,000 lives. God fearfully and wonderfully makes a beautiful boy or a girl, and then they're gone. And in 2020, while we watched the COVID ticker on TV every day, God watched 930,000 fearfully and wonderfully made boys and girls end. And all we talked about were COVID deaths. You know, Jesus said the law of God requires two things, love God and love your neighbor. And so Dave personally, me, When I consider how to use my vote, the first 63 million Americans I think about are all dead. They don't get to vote on Tuesday. And after heavily weighing that issue, I can begin to look at all of the other issues of concern. Now, I don't give my vote to people just because they say, I'm pro-life. I mean, that's not how you win my vote. I have a lot of factors to think of. But as a man before the Lord, I can't support people who are gladly pro-death. I can't as a, as a person. There are many other more issues of great importance, and I wanted to give you a bunch that people are talking about. We should prayerfully consider all of those before we vote. We've been given political power to use for the good of our neighbor. We should vote for the common good, not just our own pocketbook or our own benefit. And we should vote believing a candidate will do more good than harm, act with integrity, and speak with honesty. May God give us all wisdom this week as we consider how he would have us vote. Pilate thought he had the right and the power and the authority to decide who could live and who could die. And he was wrong and he made the wrong choice. And he had the true king killed. But Jesus gave his life on the cross, so that you and I could live. So that we could seek to influence our neighbors for the good of his kingdom, which is really where our hope lies. The absolute brief and final point, number four, our hope is in a better kingdom than Pennsylvania, than Montgomery County, than the United States of America, and then this world right now. Our hope is in a better kingdom. This world is not our own. Political power is not our primary tool to influence this world. Prayer is. And that means that we can wake up Wednesday confident that Jesus is still king. 
Pilate thought Caesar was running the show, and his decision was to put his trust in King Caesar. But prayer is how we show our trust is in King Jesus, because even though he died, friends, he is risen, and he is king. So verse 12, one more time, the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, so you and I can support King Caesar or King Jesus. And this week, more than any other week, take Pilate's words seriously. He brought Jesus out and said, Behold your king. And he didn't know he was telling the truth. Tuesday night when you go to bed and Wednesday morning when you wake up, Jesus will still be king. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled that the king would die in our place. We are humbled that your son would take our place so that he might be glorified to earn his crown as true king. And now as he reigns, thank you that the primary way your kingdom comes is through your church of which the kingdom of heaven Nothing can prevail against it. Nothing can stop it. No weapon of fashioned against the kingdom of your son can stop it. The kingdom of Jesus through the church is how your kingdom comes. Give us great hope this week in remembering where true power comes from. Give us great joy this week as we trust Jesus every day. And Father, as we realize that we were sinners who needed a Savior, who needed an innocent man to go to the cross for us, may we cry out to Him each day for the forgiveness of our sins and for salvation. Thank You that we have a kingdom so much better than the kingdom of this world and a king who is greater than all earthly kings. Help us worship King Jesus and behold him this week. In Christ Jesus the King's name we pray. Amen.